Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. continuing our series on a closer look at 12 Ordinary Men. Um, I'm just going to start right out the gate with this because it's been brought to my attention and I really want to make sure that I'm making it crystal clear, as clear as humanly possible. If you were expecting a biography of these 12 men, where I was gonna stand up here and say, okay, we're gonna talk about Peter. Let's talk about what Peter liked. You know, like maybe he liked chocolate ice cream like me, or maybe he really did not. That's not what this is designed to do. I chose the title, or I should say, the Holy Spirit gave me the title of a closer look at 12 ordinary men, because that's exactly what we're doing, but we're doing it for a reason. You see, you come out to Bible study on Thursday evening, you could be at home looking at something else, doing something else with your time. You obviously are doing that because you want to glean as much from the word as possible. So therefore, when we come before you on Thursdays, we try to give you a little bit more meat, a little bit more for your life and for your time that you're putting in. So when the title came up of a closer look. It is a closer look because we want you to take the material and put it in juxtaposition to your own life. So it's not just about the 12 men and what they did, it's about your life. And we're using them as a prism, if you will, to learn from what did they do? How does it apply to us? Because here's the thing that I want you to think about. All through this, we've seen how Jesus chose them. I don't ever want us to get so desensitized when it comes to our salvation that we don't recognize that we were chosen. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We read about that. But sometimes we, you know, because we're so caught up, we're busy, and especially in the you know, area that we live, the New York Minute, we're always busy. So we don't always stop and think about the fact that God knew your end before you ever made your entrance into the earth realm. So the point being is the same way that he chose these 12 ordinary men, he chose you. And I want you to really take that mantle on and see that. So when we're going through all of this material and we're going through all of these scriptures, I want you to put your name in there. Plug in so that you can see it. Because I believe with my whole heart that at the end of all of this, you are going to see your salvation in a different light than perhaps you saw it when we first started out. Fair enough? Okay, so I hope I'm making that a little bit clear because I don't want you to think, well, how come she hasn't mentioned Bartholomew? How come we're not talking about Peter? We're going to get to it, and you'll get to see all of that. But, you know, this is a lot deeper. So just kind of like go on the journey with me as we peel back the layers. Okay? All right, great. So the last time we were together, we talked about how when it comes to our salvation, and we all know that because we're taught that here at Crenshaw for sure, 
that our salvation is definitely a gift. It is not something that any of us just, you know, deserved. I don't care if you live the most wonderful life. I can give you a perfect example. My granddaughter is the newest member of our family, okay? So, you know, I'm gonna talk about her. <laughs> but anyway, she's seven months old now. But at seven months old, I mean, she doesn't curse because she doesn't talk. Okay, so she's not drinking alcohol. She's not doing any of the things that we would think are not the best. But even her, we are believing God that she's going to accept Jesus at an early age. Because why? That's something that is needed. So even if you all lived a perfect little life and you didn't do anything wrong and you were just great, you still had to choose Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. So therefore, just you on your own merit were not deserving of it. You were not good enough, just like my little seven-month-old granddaughter is not. We can thank Adam for that. That's a whole nother study. The point being is we have to understand how much of a gift it is and that we are not on our own merit worthy of it. And we talked about that. And we gave you scripture where Paul actually shared how he felt that he was the biggest sinner of all. And no one, no matter how we look at it, no one meets the standard of perfection. None of us do. No one is fit on our own merit to just be in God's kingdom. And no one is inherently worthy to even be in God's service. So, and I said, before you start getting up at arms and you know, getting angry with me, we looked at certain things in the word. And I gave you Romans 23. 24 to look at. I'm just gonna, I didn't share this translation with you last week, so I'm gonna rifle through it because I really want you to hear it. And this is out of the message translation, Romans 3, verses 23 and 24. And it says, and with the message, as you know, sometimes the verses are just a little bit different. So it's actually starting out with verse 21 in the message, and it says, but in our time, something new has been added. What Moses and the prophets witnessed to all those years has happened. The God setting things right that we read about has become Jesus setting things right for us. And not only for us, but for everyone who believes in him. For there is no difference between us and them in this. Since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, both us and them, and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us, God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself, a pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be. And he did it by means of Jesus Christ, which is wonderful when you think about it. Because again, none of us is righteous. And if we look at it um, in Romans, the third chapter and the 10th verse, and I'm going to share that out of the message, it says, so where does that put us? Do we Jews get a better break than the others? Not really. Basically all of us, whether insiders or outsiders, start out in identical conditions, which is to say that we all start out as sinners. Scripture leaves no doubt about it. There's nobody living right, not even one. Nobody knows the score. Nobody alert for God. They've all taken the wrong turn. They've all wandered down blind alleys. No one's living right. I can't find a single one. Their throats are gaping graves. Their tongues slick as mudslides. Every word they speak is tinged with poison. They open their mouths and pollute the air. They race for the honor of the sinner of the year, 
litter the land with heartbreaking ruin. This sounds a lot like people that we are seeing now. Don't know the first thing about living with others. They never give God the time of day. This makes it clear, doesn't it? That whatever is written in these scriptures is not what God says about others, but to us, to whom these scriptures were addressed in the first place. Because as we know, I'm gonna pause, as we know, the scriptures are written to whom? To believers, they're not really written to sinners. Our involvement with God's revelation doesn't put us right with God. What it does is force us to face our complicity in everybody else's sin. I thought that was really, really something to read. So of course, like I said, we talked about how Timothy, when, when Paul was writing to Timothy, who was like his spiritual son, he definitely mentored him, loved him, and cared for him. He talked about how he definitely was the biggest sinner of all. And so we get that drift. Now the good news is yes, when we accept Jesus, we are born again, we are recreated, and we have something that we can find very, very precious in our salvation. But here's the other thing that we have to understand. And this we can really feel for a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially if they are not in the teaching ministry of Apostle Frederick Casey Price where they're getting the word. A lot of times people are still going to church, they still love the Lord, but they're still not really getting the meat of the word. And a lot of them make no mistake, still think of themselves as, think of themselves rather, as just worthless nobodies. And left to ourselves, that would really be the case. However, worthless nobodies are just the kind of people that God uses because that is all he has to work with when you think about it. I mean, because it's not like all of a sudden we're going to become different. So he takes our ordinary and he turns it into extraordinary, but only if we allow him to do so by making ourselves available. Now we also have to always remember that Satan constantly is doing what? Giving us thoughts, ideas, and suggestions to keep us in remembrance of our shortcomings. He will do that every single day that you live. You may think you have gotten through something, you're on the other side of something, and he's gonna bring up the same thought, idea, and suggestion to try to pull you back into where he wants you in that realm of thinking. But the wonderful news is that Christ's choice of the apostles proves to each one of us, that's why I said we need to plug our name in when we're studying them, that God can use the unworthy and the unqualified. He can use ordinary people just like you, just like me, just like he did with these 12 men who turned the entire world upside down. And when we take the time to think about it, God chooses the humble, the lowly, the meek, and the weak so that there's never any question, this is so important, about the source of power when their lives change the world. It's not the man, it's the truth of God and the power of God in the man. That's what makes all of the difference. And that's exactly where we left off. <laughs> so it is interesting that some pastors, teachers, preachers, evangelists, whatever other <laughs> title you wanna add in, need to be reminded of that fact. It's really not about what cleverness they have, what personality they exude, you know, what little hook they have to try to get you to come into church. That's not it. It's not about any of that. Quite frankly, it's not about them 
at all. The power remains and will always remain in the word. The truth that we share, not in us. And that should really be encouraging to us too, so that when you're sharing the word of God to someone and you know, they don't seem to be responding the way that you think, don't take it personal because it's not about you. It's not about how you say it or how many verses of scripture you know. It's not about that. Okay, so don't even just realize that you have planted seed. And if you plant that seed, then you walk away and you trust because you will pray and intercede that someone will come along and water the seed and the harvest will still come. Because apart from one person, one extraordinary human being who was God incarnate, God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the history of God's work on earth is the story of his using the unworthy and molding them for his use the same way that a potter fashions clay. That's why you hear that talked about a lot, about how the potter, we want him to fashion our lives. Because if you've ever seen, you know, we have, if you've seen the movie Ghost, that's the famous thing where they're sitting there on the potter's wheel and they're shaping and forming, you know, whatever bowl or whatever they're making, that's what we want God to do with our lives. And he will if we make ourselves available. So the 12 were no exception to that. They were the same thing. Now the apostles do properly hold an elevated place in redemptive history. They are certainly worthy of that position and are considered heroes of the faith. The book of Revelation describes how their names will adorn the 12 gates of the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem. Turn with me to Revelation 21. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 14. Okay, if we look at it in the Amplified, Revelation 21, starting with verse 12, it says, it had a massive and high wall with 12 large gates, and at the gates were stationed 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were written. On the east side there were three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, Christ. Um, if we look at it in the message, it says, one of the seven angels who had carried the bowls filled with the seven final disasters spoke to me, come here, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He took me away in the spirit to an enormous high mountain and showed me holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, resplendent with the bright glory of God. The city shimmered like a precious gem, light-filled, pulsing light. She had a wall majestic and high with 12 gates. At each gate stood an angel, and on the gates were inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Three gates on the east, three on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. The wall was set on 12 foundations, the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb inscribed on them. Now next week we're gonna go into some depth as to why there were 12. How come it was 12 and not 24 and not some other particular number? It's a specific reason. We're gonna go into detail with that next week. Heaven itself features an eternal tribute to these 12 ordinary men. Still, that does not diminish the truth that they are just as ordinary as you and I. We need to remember 
them not from their stained glass images that we talked about, but from the down-to-earth way that the Bible presents them to us. We need to get to know them as real people. The better we become acquainted with them, the more we can actually learn from them. Now, of course, we will not underestimate the importance of, the, of their particular office. After all, these 12 apostles became the true spiritual leaders of Israel. The religious elite of Israel were symbolically set aside once Jesus chose them. These 12 ordinary men became the first preachers of the new covenant. They were the ones to whom the Christian gospel was first entrusted. They represented the true Israel of God, a genuinely repentant and believing Israel. Importantly, they became the foundation stones of the church, with Jesus himself as what? As the chief cornerstone. And that we see if you look at Ephesians. Turn with me to Ephesians 2. And we're going to look at verses 20 through 22. And it says in the New King James Version, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone and whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord and whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. In the message it said, that's plain enough, isn't it? You're no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. You're no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here with as much right to the name Christian as anyone. God is building a home. He's using us all, irrespective of how we got here and what he is building. He used the apostles and prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see it, if taking shape, we see it taking shape actually day by day. A holy temple built by God, all of us built into it, a temple in which God is quite at home. That's absolutely beautiful to me. I really, really do like that. So. These truths were heightened, not at all diminished by the fact that these men were so ordinary. It's not heightened at all by the fact that we're so ordinary. This is consistent with the way the Lord always works. Turn with me really quickly to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. In the New King James Version, it says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now, that's good and that's okay, but it's not really clear. It almost sounds like a tongue twister if, if you just listen to it or even if you just read it. So if we look at that same thing in the Amplified, which of course you know I like because it's the qualifier, it says it this way. Where is the wise man? Qualifier, philosopher. Where is the scribe? Qualifier, scholar. Where is the debater? 
the, <laughs> the orator, where is that person of this age? Has God not exposed the foolishness of this world's wisdom? For since the world through all its earthly wisdom failed to recognize God, God in his wisdom was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached regarding salvation to save those who believe in Christ and welcome him as savior. If we look at it in the Living Bible, it says, so what about these wise men, these scholars, these brilliant debaters of this world's great affairs? God has made them all look foolish and shown their wisdom to be useless nonsense. For God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never find God through human brilliance. And he stepped in and saved all those who believed in his message, which the world calls foolish and silly. Isn't that different than the first one that we read? That's why you've got to read more than one translation. Because if not, you walk away and it's still very vague. Now this puts it right where we can totally get it. In the message it says, the message that points to Christ on the cross seems like sheer silliness to those hell bent on destruction. But to those on the way of salvation, it makes perfect sense. This is the way God works. And most powerfully, as it turns out, it's written. I'll turn conventional wisdom on its head. I'll expose so-called experts as crackpots. So where can you find someone truly wise, truly educated, truly intelligent in this day and age? Hmm. Hasn't God exposed it all as pretentious nonsense? Since the world in all its fancy wisdom never had a clue when it came to knowing God, God in his wisdom took delight in using what the world considered dumb, preaching of all things to turn those who trust him into the way of salvation. I thought that. <sighs> anyway, that's why I'm in love with different translations, because it really does make a tremendous difference to me, and hopefully to you. Now, these scriptures show the very reason there are no philosophers, no brilliant writers, no famous debaters, no eminent teachers, and no men who had distinguished themselves as great orators among the 12 men that Jesus chose. They became great spiritual leaders and great preachers under the power of the Holy Spirit. But it was not because of any innate oratorical skill leadership abilities, or academic qualifications that these men had. Their influence is owing to one thing and one thing only, the power of the message they preached. Now, on a human level, the gospel was thought a foolish, crazy message, and the apostles were regarded as unsophisticated preachers. Their teaching was beneath the elite, because you have to remember, this is during the time when they had all of these elite you know, type leadership that thought that they were up here and these little 12 ordinary men were just like nothing. Because remember, they came from Galilee, and we talked last week about how if you were from there, it was like being from someplace that was considered you know, poor, low lives, nobody of any importance lived there, and this is where they came from. Okay, so this is exactly how they're viewed. Now, after all, when you think about it too, they were just what, fishermen? and working class nobodies. They really didn't have any big pedigree behind their names. That was how every single person saw them. The same thing has been true of the genuine church of Christ throughout history. It is true, 
in the, evangel in the evangelical world really right now today that we live. For the most part, you will not find the impressive intellects, the great writers, and the great orators esteemed in the world, in the church. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to go, go back to the first chapter. You should probably still really be there. And we're going to look at verse 26. Let's see what the word says about it. In the Living Bible, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says, Notice among yourselves, dear brothers, that few of you who follow Christ have big names or power or wealth. If we look at it in the Amplified, it says, just look at your own calling, believers. Not many of you were considered wise according to human standards. Not many powerful or influential. Not many of high and noble birth. If we look at it in the easy to read, it says, brothers and sisters, God chose you to be his. See, again, we go back to the fact. He chose us to be his. Think about that. Not many of you were wise in the way of the world, in the way the world judges wisdom. You know, maybe you weren't scholarly. I mean, you know, we're not all like Uncle Balti. <laughs> okay, so maybe you weren't considered that. Many of you had great influence. Not many of you had any kind of great influence. And not many of you came from important families. The good news is it doesn't matter. Okay, but now listen to what the message says. I love this one. It says, take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start, come from God by the way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. I absolutely love that. Hmm. <laughs> now, you have to keep in mind that God's favorite instruments, we already said, they are nobodies, so that no man can boast before God. That's good. In other words, God does choose whom he chooses in order that he might receive the glory. He chooses weak instruments so that no one will attribute the power to human instruments rather than to God. These 12 ordinary men, and this is important to think about too, they struggled with pride and arrogance like every fallen human being. However, and this is key, the driving passion of their lives became the glory of Christ. It was that passion, that passion, subjected to the influence of the Holy Spirit, not any kind of innate skill or human talent, that explains why they left such an indelible impact on the world. Bear in mind that Jesus was faced with the reality of his impending death. 
He had already experienced the rising hostility of the religious leaders. I mean, he was dealing with this on a daily basis. He knew that his earthly mission would soon culminate in his death, resurrection, and ascension. And from this point on, the entire character of his ministry changed. It became top priority to do what? To train the men who would be the chief spokesman for the gospel after he was gone. Why did he choose them? That still is a good question. Why did he pick them? Turn with me to Luke's gospel, the sixth chapter, and we're going to look at verse 12. Luke 6, verse 12. And if we look at it in the New King James Version, it says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Now, if we look at it, I'm going to introduce you to a new translation called the Wycliffe Bible, which if you're looking for the acronym, it's WYC. Just think of NYC. I just thought of that. <laughs> just change the N to W. So the Wycliffe Bible says, and it was done in those days. He went out into an hill to pray, and he was all night dwelling in the prayer of God. Notice how this says, and you can kind of like underline that or make a little notation in your Bible. The Wycliffe translation says, and he was all night dwelling in the prayer of God. That's key. And I'm going to share that with you in a minute why it is. So I want you to kind of like put a little note there because that's important. It was his habit, meaning this is something that Jesus did all the time, to slip away in solitude to talk to his father. Keep in mind, he was always under pressure from the massive multitudes. Whenever he was in the towns and villages of Galilee, he was really kind of like mob. Now, scripture often shows him praying in anticipation of crucial events in his ministry. Think about it. What was he doing on the night of his betrayal? He was praying in a garden where he found some solitude from the hectic atmosphere in Jerusalem. Now, Judas Iscariot knew he would find Jesus there. Why? Let's look at, you're already in Luke, just go over to chapter 22. Well, you know what? Before you go to 22, I just want to prove this to you. You're in Luke, go to chapter 5, look at verse 16, because it says in the New King James Version, so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. And Wycliffe, it says, and he went into the desert and prayed. So in other words, that's just to set up the fact that this is something he did. It was a habit where he would go off and he would pray. So it's not just in war room where we go lock ourselves in some place to pray. That was good that it showed us that, but that actually is showing us what Jesus himself did. He found solitude and he prayed. It's not always something you can do in five minutes, ten minutes, you know, like, okay, this is what I want and that's it. You need to seek the face of God. And Jesus has shown us that that's exactly what in fact he did. So now you're in Luke, go to the 22nd chapter, and we're going to look at verses 39 through 40. So this is Luke 22, verses 39 through 40. And I'm going to show you that this really was truly his habit. So in verse 39, it says in the New King James Version, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you, might, that you may not enter into temptation. 
If we look at it in Wycliffe, it says, and he went out and went after the custom into the hill of olives. And he gone out, went by custom into the hill of olives. I mean, why they needed to repeat that, I don't know, but they did. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray ye, lest ye enter into temptation. The easy to read Bible says, Jesus left the city and went to the Mount of Olives. His followers went with him. He went there often. He said to his followers, pray for strength against temptation. This is truly showing us Jesus in his true humanity. He was standing in a very volatile situation. He had, and this again, think of yourself, okay? He's standing in a very volatile situation. He had a very brief amount of time remaining to train these 12 men who would carry the gospel to the world after his departure. The chilling reality of this matter drove him to the top of a mountain so that he could pray to God in total solitude. He had taken the form of a bondservant coming to earth as a man. The time was approaching when he would further humble himself unto death, even the death of the cross. So he goes to God as a man would go, to seek God's face in prayer and commune with the Father about the men whom he would choose for this vital office. Notice this, he spent the entire night in prayer. Now, this is where it gets interesting. An interesting note that comes through in the Greek language, although we don't really see it that often in most English translations. Our English version says that he continued all night in prayer to God. Okay, remember I told you make a notation with the Wycliffe? Because actually, the Greek expression means that he spent the whole night in the prayer of God. That's a distinct difference. Here's the key note. Whenever Jesus prayed, it was quite literally the prayer of God. He was engaged in what is known as inter-Trinitarian communion. That's interesting, right? Inter-Trinitarian communion. The prayer being offered was the very prayer of God. His prayers were all perfectly consistent with the mind and will of God, for he himself is God. And therein do we see the incredible mystery of his humanity and his deity brought together. Jesus in his humanity needed to pray all night, and Jesus in his deity was praying the very prayer of God. Now, this is really, this got me so excited, you have no idea. I couldn't wait to get to this point. As joint heirs with God and Christ, okay, we are allowed the privilege to be filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit evidenced by speaking with other tongues. So our spirit <laughs> is praying when we do not know to pray as we ought. Are we not communing with the Godhead within us? Yes. Do you know how special that is? Yes. <sighs> if you didn't get it, 
I will pray for you, because this is so exciting to me. Don't miss this either. The choice of Christ, the choice Christ, rather, would make regarding these 12 was of such monumental importance that it required 10 to 12 hours of prayer in preparation. Now, what do you think he was praying for? Okay, perhaps clarity in the decision of whom to choose? I don't think so. As omniscient God incarnate, the divine will was no mystery to him. He was no doubt praying for the men he would soon appoint, communing with the Father about the absolute wisdom of his choice and acting, this is the key, acting in his capacity as mediator on their behalf. Now, when you think about that, what does he do for us? Is he not our high priest? Is he not a mediator for us? Is this not showing us exactly what he does for us? So when I'm telling you this is a closer look at 12 ordinary men, it's a closer look at each one of you, and it's a closer look at me, and we need to see it, because this is not something that's always discussed, and I don't think we always get it. We just kind of gloss over it. You can't gloss over it. You need to own it. You need to own it. Okay, so we don't know. And this is another thing we got to think about. We don't know how many disciples Jesus had. Remember, these 12 ordinary men, I said, were the initial disciples. Or they are the ones he appointed as apostles. But he had multitudes of people who were following him. What is a disciple? It's somebody who's a learner. It's somebody who is following what they're being taught, what they are seeing. He was always mobbed. We see this in scripture. So he had hundreds and thousands, I don't know how because they don't give us this distinct number, of people around him. But out of all of those people, he picked 12. You are living in New York City. There are millions of people all around you in apartment buildings. But where are you? You are here feasting upon the word. How many of all of these millions that are here have been chosen by God? Don't take it so cavalierly like, oh, yes. It's serious. It's an honor to be in the body of Christ. It truly, truly, truly is. Okay. So, at one point we know that he sent 70 out in pairs to evangelize the communities where he was preparing to visit. Why do we know this? Turn to Luke 10. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10 and verse 1 says, in the easy to read, after this the Lord chose 72 more followers. He sent them out in groups of two. He sent them ahead of him into every town and place where he planned to go. The Amplified Classic Edition says, now after this, the Lord chose and appointed 70 others and sent them out ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to come or visit. Now we shared oh, weeks ago, why did he send people out in twos? Why, even when I used to send my children somewhere, I always sent them out in twos. Now I will be honest, when I sent them out in twos, 
I just did it because Jesus sent a mountain twos. I didn't even know necessarily why, but I did it because he did it, so it seemed like a good idea. But the reason why he did that was because, remember, they were living in hostile times. Everybody was not thinking they were the greatest thing since pound cake, and they went through a lot. So you go out in twos so one can encourage the other. One can help one another. We need to remember that as Christians, too. When you're going through a challenge sometimes, why does it say in the word one can put a thousand a flight, but two can put 10,000 a flight. It's wonderful when you can get a brother or sister, but you must be careful because they have to have the same mind as you to be able to get into agreement with you so that you are, the two of you are doing it opposed to just you doing it by yourself. So anyway, we know that he did that, but the total number of his followers was most likely far more than 70. Okay, we know that. Scripture indicates that multitudes follow him. And how many of you would agree that a multitude is more than 70? Okay, so of course, they would. His teaching was unlike of course, oh, what I was saying. Scripture indicates that multitudes followed him. Followed meaning they were learning from him, they were gleaning from him, they were paying attention, not just following along like follow the leader. Okay, so now, of course they're gonna do that during this time, why? Because his teaching was unlike anything that they had ever been exposed to. He also had something that other people didn't have. He had the ability to heal the sick. He had the ability to cast out demons and to raise the dead. Other people were not doing this. With that said, however, reject them, they still did. Because his message was more than they could actually bear. We see the dynamics of this in the Gospel of John. Turn with me to John's Gospel, the sixth chapter. And we're going to look at verse 10. John's Gospel, the sixth chapter, verse 10. In the easy to read version, it says, Jesus said, tell everyone to sit down. This was a place with a lot of grass and about 5,000 men sat there. In the Amplified Classic Version, the same verse of scripture says, Jesus said, make all the people recline or sit down. Now the ground, a pasture, was covered with thick grass at the spot, so the men threw themselves down about 5,000 in number. Now if you really count the women and children, the crowd might have easily been double 5,000 or more. So now you're there, drop down to verse 14. So this is John 6, just drop down to verse 14. And the easy to read it says, the people saw this miraculous sign that Jesus did and said, he must be the prophet who is coming into the world. And they probably meant the prophet that God told Moses he would send. That's who they're really referring to. If we look at it in the Amplified Classic Edition, it says, when the people saw the sign, the miracle that Jesus had performed, they began saying, surely and beyond a doubt, this is the prophet who is come into the world. Now, we all know the story of how he fed all of these people with the, you know, the fishes and the loaves, and he had bushels like fragments left over in baskets. This is the miracle that they're talking about. So I didn't read that whole story to you. You can read it on your own if you're not familiar with it, but that's what they're talking about at this point. So think about the people, though, who experienced that, who saw him take these little fish and loaves and feed all of these people. Because think about the fact that during this time frame, many of these people spent most of their lives doing what? Farming, harvesting, 
raising animals and preparing meals. They weren't just going to McDonald's and picking up a number two, okay? They had work to do for every single little thing that they ate. Jesus, however, could just create food. He created enough to feed all of these people. So they must have in their minds, be real, think of, oh wow, yes I want to hang around with him. This is a time of leisure, it's like vacation. I'll just hang out with him and I'll be able to pick up whatever he's feeding, you know, whatever he's serving for the day. So if we look at, you're already in John 6, just drop down to verse 15, the very next verse. And the easy to read version says, Jesus knew that the people planned to come get him and make him their king. I mean, it's quite natural, they wanted him, okay? So he left and went into the hills alone. He figured out a way to escape them. If we look at it in the Amplified Classic, it says, then Jesus, knowing that they meant to come and seize him, that they might take him, make him rather king, withdrew again to the hillside by himself alone. This kind of lets us know that he did spend quite a bit of alone time which, you know, maybe some of us need to think about that. Maybe not all of us, but you know, if you're one of these people who you're constantly around people all the time, maybe you need to take a break. You know, maybe fast some of that time. Fast in the sense of you spend some time just with him, not with every other person that you can imagine. You don't need to call up everybody on the phone. Maybe you need to just sit somewhere and speak to your heavenly father and seek his face and find out what he has to say. We can learn from that too, okay? So the next day, people found Jesus in Capernaum on the other side of the lake. Crowds of them had come looking for him, obviously hoping that he would give them some more food. <laughs> he called them out, though, regarding their wrong motives. You're in John. You're in the sixth chapter. Just drop down to verse 26. See, I'm making this really easy for you. So John 6, verse 26, in the easy-to-read version, he answered, why are you looking for me? Is it because you saw miraculous signs? The truth is, you were looking for me because you ate the bread and were satisfied. In the Amplified, it says, Jesus answered, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, you have been searching for me, not because you saw the signs attesting miracles, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. So in other words, he knew exactly what their deal was, of course. So they continue to ask for food. I mean, can you imagine? He's telling them this and they're still gonna keep, you know. Okay, so they continue to ask for food. His response though, I loved it. Drop down to verse 51. This is precious. So John's Gospel, sixth chapter, verse 51, the easy to read version. And this is what Jesus said. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my body. I will give my body so that the people in the world can have life. And then the Amplified version says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, what does that mean? It means this, here's the qualifier. Believes in me, accepts me as savior, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh or body. Now, hmm, they really didn't grasp this. Okay, this was definitely above their heads. They didn't understand what he was saying. And he pushed, they pushed him rather, to explain exactly what he meant by that. And he did. And we will talk about that when we come back next week. 
Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 945 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Thanks again for listening, and remember, walk by faith, not by sight.